Hello and welcome back to episode 21 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Today we're going to do another kind of bit of interview format. So like a few episodes back or quite a few episodes back, we did one on collagen where Leah interviewed me. So to kind of make up for that one, we're going to go the other end of the spectrum and do a topic that Leah is far more well-versed than I am. And we're going to be talking about nutritional considerations for plant-based athletes. So this is something that I've always, my just my personal thoughts is that I think you can do a plant-based diet just as well as an omnivorous diet. You can get pretty much everything you need for optimal performance through that. But there are challenges associated with that, particularly under very specific circumstances. So we'll kind of talk through those kind of things today, really. So starting off with like, what are some of those common challenges that plant-based athletes face? We definitely face very specific challenges being on a plant-based diet and trying to you know, have these athletic or performance goals. Um, I'd say there's probably three main ones. Um, the first is going to be protein intake. So whilst a lot of vegans are like, oh, you know, you don't have to worry about protein intake, like we'll get enough. Um, I think that's true for the general population. I think, you know, it's easy to meet um, kind of like your, your protein requirements for general health and well-being on a, a vegan diet. But when we're thinking about the protein requirements for athletes and how big they are, um, it can be a lot more difficult to meet those on a, on a plant-based diet. So that is absolutely one where I will rarely ever find, like if people come to me and they're a plant-based athlete, I think I've had a very small handful actually meeting their protein requirements on a consistent basis. It would be like less than five for sure. And I work with predominantly plant-based people. So a very small percentage. Yeah. Let, let's start with that. So like even like on an omnivorous diet, like that's a challenge for a lot of people. Of like there, there's a bit of a culture that I, particularly amongst dietitians actually, but like where people talk about this concept of like the Western world over consumes protein. And like as a portion or a percentage of total calories and stuff like that, firstly, that's that's a low percentage of our calories. We have a large percentage coming from fat and carbs to start off with just a general population. But like general health, we don't really need that high of a protein intake. But when we're talking athletes, it does get higher. And even like amongst powerlifters and stuff like that, I see like it's still something that needs to be focused on to make sure you're reaching those targets. Um, I'll start with a few questions. So one of them I want to go with is like, do you change what you'd call the evidence-based range of protein for plant-based athletes? I do. And I actually increase it, which makes it even a harder. little bit harder. Yeah. Um, so we do know that the like the digestibility and like the amino acid profile of plant-based proteins are not as suited to muscle building as, um, you, you know, your animal-based protein. So usually if you're having plant-based proteins, you're not digesting as much of that protein as you would be as if you were having, say, steak. So like tofu versus steak. Um, and even a better example would be like legumes, which have quite a low digestibility at times compared to steak. So I say that generally you need at least kind of 10 to 20% more protein on a vegan diet than a non-vegan diet. Um, so... From the perspective of even like working with all my plant-based powerlifters and people in the strength space, you know, I, I want them to have at least two grams of protein per kilo body weight at a minimum. Yeah. Where if I'm working with uh, someone who's not plant-based, you know, maybe we have a little bit more leeway and going like 1.8. Um, but yeah, we definitely need more on a vegan diet. Yeah. So like what I see that being a lot easier when you're on higher calories. So like one of the biggest mm, challenges, this doesn't totally. cover all plant-based sources, but it's like most plant-based sources will have more carbs or fat than protein. So 
we'll start with actually let's start with that before we go into the next thing I want to talk about sure. like exceptions to that kind of general rule like what what options would you go with that are not higher in carbs and fat than protein I talk a lot about protein efficiency uh, and I think it's it's definitely something I'll, I'll talk about more often in a from a plant-based perspective because a lot of our protein sources are not efficient and talking about efficiency in terms of um, how many grams of protein you're getting per 100 calories. So my idea of a, an efficient source of protein would be anything where that had at least 12 grams of protein per 100 calories. We're thinking animal-based food, that's actually quite low. So yeah. compared that to chicken, which oh, I couldn't actually it's say almost, it's almost like, yeah, like, But it would be like 20 Yeah, it's a bit over 20. Yeah, 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 it'd be yeah. about 20. Um, there, there's nothing that comes to mind as a plant-based protein is that is quite that efficient. So that's why there is that struggle in reaching your protein intake, particularly if you have some kind of calorie deficit or your calories are low. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to go into next. Yeah. So like calorie surplus, protein starts to become a smaller percentage to get to that, say, two grams per kilogram body weight. Going to maintenance calories becomes a little bit harder, but still pretty manageable, particularly if you're quite active and stuff like that, higher calorie needs. But if you go into a calorie deficit, so like some, a problem that I've always kind of seen and a challenge associated with that is like, there's this paper from it by Eric Helms on like when you're in a big calorie deficit or you're getting quite lean or you're prepping for a bodybuilding show. And the range he talks about is 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, which is almost all of your mass if you're that lean. Yes. <laughs> and so it's even higher than the two grams in that case. And if you then also look at it from the logic of being like, well, somebody who's plant-based, we might even go a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. How do you get around that problem? That's a, it's a very difficult question because I think sometimes you just have to go, okay, in this particular scenario, a plant-based diet is not going to be, that's not going to be feasible to get like say three grams of protein per kilo of fat-free mass. You may just not be able to get there. You can do things like just focusing on your really efficient sources of proteins or things like um, like your soy-based foods, textured vegetable protein, tofu um, and things like that. But Sometimes it's just not feasible. I've definitely come across athletes who are on like 16 to 1800 calories in a calorie deficit, but their protein requirements are 150 plus grams. That doesn't always work out on a plant-based diet. So you kind of just have to take the loss sometimes. I'd say it's pretty rare that I do that. Like I undercut protein, Yeah, but it happens sometimes for sure. Yeah. And like, that's also like, honestly, that is how I work with a lot of my clients. If they're doing that, like, even though I'm like, well, theoretically protein needs should be a little bit higher, maybe could be a little bit higher. I do undercut it sometimes in those circumstances because it's just like, it's just, it's, it's quite unrealistic. The way around that, that I see some athletes using is just a ton of protein powder. Yes. Which I do not recommend on a plant-based diet. I mean, I don't recommend it in general. Like you can use it, but I usually say like, I max a protein powder that I want someone using is like two scoops a day or like 60 grams. I think if more of your protein is coming from protein powder than whole foods and you're really missing out on your micronutrients and that's when you have high risk of iron deficiency and all of those other things that are in our protein foods. And like particularly while calorie restricted and it's harder. Yeah. yeah, And as a vegan where you have higher needs of some of those um, minerals as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a hard one. Yeah. Because I do see people do it, but that is something that really... Yeah, is a challenge. Lower calories, harder to get stuff in. 
Yeah, interesting. And it kind of sucks too, having a lot of protein powder and not a lot of whole foods. It's just never a fun time. Yeah. And we've spoken about this a few times, but like in case this is the first time somebody listens to this podcast, if you're looking for a plant-based protein powder, what would you be looking for? So I usually recommend two options. The first and is like my gold standard option is going to be your soy protein isolate because we know like the anabolic effect of um, soy protein isolate is very similar to whey. Mm-hmm. So because it's so close, it's, it's a good win for us to kind of go for the soy protein isolate. But some people have reservations around having too much soy. Um, and the research around that is is vast <laughs> so we won't go into that uh, rabbit hole but for some people it's easier to go oh let's just go another option um, and in which case I'd go like a pea and rice uh, protein blend so we know that protein from legumes and protein from grains are complementary in their amino acid profile so whilst just having pea or just having like a brown rice protein wouldn't be a very complete amino acid profile together they make a somewhat complete almost um, amino acid profile yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay, so I actually, I, I do actually want to touch on the soy aspect. So okay. like, I, I know like, so like for everyone listening, like right now Leah is writing a blog post <laughs> on soy and how that affects things. And it, it is a deep rabbit hole. Yeah. What I actually want just from you right now though, is like, like brief thoughts, like how much soy is okay for somebody striving to optimize athletic performance in general and even just maybe touch on the health aspect as well. Yeah. So we do know, like based on the research that I've come across and the systematic reviews out there, that there is not no one huge issue with having a lot of soy in your diet. Like it's not like, oh, soy definitely causes feminization effects in men. Like we don't have research to say that or that it even really changes estrogen levels in men. Um, and there is research to say that the phytoestrogen phytoestrogen in soy is protective against a few you know, things. So things like, um, like breast cancer in women, prostate cancer in men, potentially. Evidence is kind of murky still. Um, the only time I suppose... I am mindful of having too much soy would be is if a woman is looking at getting pregnant in terms of fertility. So from what I can understand, uh, having having soy in your diet does seem to improve rates of fertility to a certain point. Um, And then when you get to really, really high intakes of the phytoestrogens in soy, it can potentially start to have the opposite effect and reduce fertility. So again, we don't have hard evidence on that or exactly how much soy that is, but there was one systematic review that said that having over 100 milligrams of soy isoflavins is probably not recommended if you're trying to get pregnant. And that would be equal to like four to five serves of soy in a day. Yeah, cool. Awesome. And like something that I've heard, I haven't looked into this one too closely, but like my understanding is like the estrogen in men kind of thing stems from like a case study and there's obviously heaps of research on this but like it stems from a case study where somebody had like three liters of soy milk per day for a long period of time yeah in men's health magazine it was like in 2009 and it just went off like wildfire yeah yeah, this guy was having three liters of soy a day and it was a case study and it was allegedly like due to the soy intake but yeah yeah it's a bit bit misleading i think yeah yeah and even if that was something that kind of translates to like practicality if it was Mm done in a larger sample size in control setting, all those kind of things. It still kind of comes back to one of the things you said where it's like, 
low to moderate intakes probably fine from what I understand. It's probably even good for yeah, us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If anything, it's just, you know, there might be a, a level where it's no longer good for us and starts going in the other direction. But I would say looking at the research that that amount of soy is quite high. Like yeah. you'd have to have a lot and you'd have to start yeah. displacing other foods. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and like the only reason I, I kind of wondered that is, is is that example of people who like go really deep into one thing, like the protein powder thing is an example where it's like yeah. doing one thing like that and just having heaps of that as a way to get their protein in um, could potentially lead to that kind of thing where you're like, oh, sure. three litres of soy milk per day. Like, yeah, you could get yeah. up to that level. Yeah. All right, cool. So what are other challenges that plant-based athletes would face? So... You know, coming off protein and not being able to maybe get quite enough um, while you're in a calorie deficit, there's also, can you get enough calories on a plant-based diet to meet high energy requirements? Um, Because a lot of the food on a plant-based diet is going to be really high fiber, kind of lower calorie, not very energy dense. Great for dieting, for people wanting to lose weight and manage appetite. Maybe a barrier for athletes who have really high energy requirements and need to eat a lot. Like you even see this in non non vegan people trying to eat yeah. predominantly whole foods, like healthy, nutritious diet, whilst trying to bulk, or if they've just got really high energy requirements, it can be difficult. But then imagine all of your food is super, super high fiber and yeah. satiating. So let, let's touch on the fiber a bit later because there's heaps I want to talk about with that. Yeah. So like with the like getting enough calories in, something that's obviously fascinating is that like. People talk about it heaps and they make jokes about how you can have unhealthy vegan foods. Like you can get calories in. Yeah. But like a lot of people, not all of them, but like a lot of people who are plant-based are also health conscious or more health conscious than the average Definitely. person and probably don't want to go too far down that route. So say you come to somebody who is plant-based, quite health conscious, and they want to get more calories in and they've been struggling for a long time on their own. What is there any strategies you'd really look at as like first options or anything like that? It depends on the person, but I usually, I look at their fiber intake initially. And if it's around that kind of 70 to 90 grams per day, which is common, I see that a lot. My, my first thing is like, okay, how can we strategically reduce this fiber intake whilst maintaining the quality of their diet and their protein? Um, so Yes, I guess you could have a bunch of things like mock, meat, mock meats and vegan junk food, but that's going to make it really hard to meet your protein requirements because unlike a yeah. lot of non-plant-based foods, those will tend to be super low protein options. So you can't just like go out and have McDonald's. Like all of our fast food, junk food options yeah. are going to be low protein. So there's that. Um, but I usually go for trying to reduce um, fruit and veg intake to uh, a, a moderate level because sometimes that can be Quite really high, high in yeah. vegans um, almost you know too much to meet their actual requirements for other food groups um, and I'd also look at replacing some of their whole grains with more refined grains so if they're having like a bunch of uh, if they're having like rye bread maybe it makes sense to move to a white bread with a lower fiber content or using low fiber cereals like Nutrigrain is, a, is a f- one of my favorites as opposed to like wheat bix um, and just strategically trying to reduce that overall fiber intake yeah for sure which like it does it does tie into the next thing that we're going to talk about in terms of like gastrointestinal issues so like is something i see really commonly where people who eat exclusively plant-based mm-hmm. often partly because they have really high fiber intake and maybe fodmaps we can talk about as well because yeah. like those <laughs> will be it's in the same yeah. kind of category to a certain degree causing the same issues um commonly getting gastrointestinal issues 
what's your way around that with plant-based athletes even like to the point where like because that could affect performance too like this is not just oh, a does, quality of life yeah. it can affect performance so how, how would you work around that once again it kind of goes back to the fiber intake like i in strategically reducing that fiber intake to a more manageable level so say 40 to 50 grams as opposed to 60 to 90 grams per day i often always see an immediate reduction yeah. in symptoms like it's a no-brainer um we could also do things like moving to more liquid calories, a bit easier to digest and get more food volume in, in an easy way. And that sometimes helps and really focusing on chewing very fibrous foods well. Um, but nothing moves the needle more than just reducing fiber intake. Yeah. And going to FODMAPs as well, because you've mentioned in the past, it's a bit of a struggle to yes. do that one. and i can see why it would be a struggle it's not not quite as bad as i yeah. hear people going like keto vegan like that's like <laughs> that's very very restrictive but like fodmaps on a on a plant-based diet would be a struggle yeah do you still manipulate stuff with that like do you still play around with with fodmap stuff I, I, if the fiber stuff doesn't alleviate enough of the symptoms, I'll go into the FODMAP stuff a little bit more and just start replacing some of their daily food items with a low FODMAP option and start taking out really, really high FODMAP options. And that sometimes helps, but still like you're, if you have really high food intake from high energy requirements and it's all plant-based food, then we know that all plant-based food has some level of FODMAPs in it. Yeah. You know, you are going to be eating a lot of FODMAPs in general. So if you have IBS, that can be a real challenge. Yeah. But sometimes manipulating those things just a little bit helps enough. Yeah, cool. And then the last thing that I was kind of thinking about as well is that, like, it's something that I overlook very often because I, I want to go to more advanced stuff. But, like, little things like chewing slower and stuff like that, like, particularly, like, legumes and stuff like yes. that. Um, that would be a thing. Is there any other easy wins? Is there anything you've got to say about that? I don't know. In practice, the only thing that has really moved the needle is reducing fiber intake. Like yeah. I've tried a number of things, like yeah. playing with FODMAPs, probiotics, chewing foods really well, moving to, um, I guess, more things like tofu instead of like um, like whole soybeans that are like more fibrous. Uh, but yeah, nothing's going to improve it more than just bring down that fiber intake in total. Yeah, cool. Is there anything else you can think of, any other challenges, any any other easy wins that you see as common for vegan athletes or plant-based athletes? I, I think the, the biggest things I would always suggest to, to plant-based athletes is, you know, use really efficient sources of protein. Um, make sure you're getting enough calories because it's very easy to underfuel on a plant-based diet. Like that's quite common to people just to be undercutting themselves in that way. Um, and to utilize more processed foods where you can um it's I, I find a lot of vegans are like oh i don't want to use nutrigrain because it has a fair bit of sugar it's not a lot of yeah. fiber and i'm like you need sugar and you don't need the fiber yeah. so it's actually the perfect option for you so i'd say try to get out of that mentality if you're struggling with these things um to, and introduce more of those slightly yeah. more processed foods yeah it's pretty pretty counterintuitive but like when you're really far at one end of the spectrum like moving moving back towards the other end of the spectrum can help a little bit totally. um one thing that I, I have forgotten to ask, because like it, it's something that I, I'm actually a bit more familiar with this, but like, is it's, it can't be missed in this podcast really? Is micronutrients? So obviously, yeah. there's certain micronutrients that are harder to get, and you've probably answered this question so many times in your life. But like, what micronutrients matter, and should you be aware of, pay attention to, and what? How would you go about addressing those? Yeah. So I just talking about vegans in general, or people on a plant based diet. 
B12 is a massive one. So if you're like, it's a non-negotiable for me. If you're on any kind of plant-based diet, wherever you are on the spectrum and you're cutting out animal foods, take a B12 supplement. We know that B12 really is only found in animal foods um, and the ones in plant-based foods. Like you can find it in nutritional yeast and some mushrooms and some fortified foods, but you'd have to be so mindful about your intake that it becomes really hard to hit that consistently. And then cutting in on that one, like how long does it take? Like if somebody switches vegan and they have no intake, how long does it take before like starts to affect under energy it takes a long time to be honest to, de- to develop a b12 deficiency can take a couple of years of being vegan with no yeah. supplementation so i'll quite often see people who have who are getting their blood test done they're not taking a b12 supplement yeah. they're like oh my b12's always been fine like oh how long have you been vegan they're like oh like when was your last blood test like oh you know i've been vegan for like a year i'm like okay yeah because your b12 is probably really high and it's slowly come yeah. down over this time so, you know, in a couple of years, you're probably going to, you're going to be deficient if you're not It's like guaranteed. It's just guaranteed. It's yeah. guaranteed. Unless you're having like ungodly amounts of nutritional yeast in your diet. Yeah. You need a B12 supplement. Yeah. And the reason I push that so much with my clients is that it's not like iron deficiency where you're feeling fatigued um, and there's all these like ramifications, but there's not really a long, super long-term consequence B12, if you're B12 deficient for long enough, you are going to experience things like long-lasting nerve damage yeah, and brain that damage. Me. That scares That's me. That's so scary. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's irreversible consequences of B12 deficiency. So yeah, 100% non-negotiable. All right, well, then other micronutrients? Yeah, so uh, there's so many. Um, but the next probably important one would be iron. That would come up a lot. So, you know... Iron deficiency is something I see a lot in practice um, and it can be really difficult, particularly for people with a menstrual cycle to get enough um, iron on a plant-based diet. So iron requirements are about 1.8 times the amount um, on a vegan diet as opposed to when you're eating animal products. So not only are the sources of, you know, your, your predominant iron source is lower in iron than animal foods, but you also need a lot more iron. Yeah. So you've got these like competing things that makes yeah. it really difficult to meet your requirements. Some people can fo- just focus on getting enough iron rich foods in their diet and doing things like pairing it with vitamin C rich foods to boost absorption and whatnot. But um, I, I do often put people on kind of lower dose iron supplements just to supplement their diet, particularly if they have menstrual cycle. Yeah. Makes it easy. It's hard to get like a lot, of, a lot of women struggle to get enough iron anyway. Yes. <laughs> so it's like you add this burden on top of it, and it's yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's really difficult to do consistently, and then I I definitely use that kind of iron supplementation if there's also a calorie deficit on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Do you want to quickly list off? There's one other question I've got to ask. Do you want to quickly list off any other nutrients? Yeah, so let's just quickly go through the rest. Like zinc is definitely one, particularly when it comes to men. Like we know men have quite high zinc requirements as opposed to women. Um, And zinc requirements are about 1.5 times the amount on a vegan diet as opposed to non-vegan diet. And there's actually not a lot of plant-based foods that are like super rich in zinc. So that's one that may need supplementing or particular attention are paid to it. Um, And then you've also got smaller things like selenium and iodine and and vitamin d and things that are more difficult to get on a plant-based diet which depending on the individual might need attention as well yeah yeah cool the only other question i've got because i I heard you say this on another podcast i've never really thought about too hard before this but like 
what's the difference between vegan and plant-based? Oh yeah. So it, it's mainly just like the, the ethics surrounding it. So plant, a plant-based diet is just that it's a, it's a diet. So it's when you're eating predominantly plant-based like foods and very few animal products. Vegan kind of comes into this ethical spectrum where it's more or less a lifestyle and based around your opinions on like animal cruelty and the environment. Um, so vegans will be very strict in the fact that they don't have any animal products whatsoever. Um, and that'll also extend to things in their household, like not being tested on animals and their clothes not being made from like wool and stuff like that. Yeah. So one's a diet and one's more or less like a ethical thing. Yeah. Like that kind of blew my mind to hear that. I don't know how common knowledge that is, but like it was probably like a year or two ago that you said that. And I was like, it's crazy that I'd been a dietitian <laughs> before that. Yeah. And not like, like I, I knew a little bit of it, but like I just like kind of like use vegan as a cover all term being like, if you don't eat any, any meat, dairy, eggs, etc., like that's vegan. And yes. then there's like a different level of vegan for like the other ethical stuff as well. Right. Like I always thought okay. it was like vegan for, and I don't like know if I'm vegan gonna... level one or vegan yeah, level yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm sounding like an idiot by saying that, no, but yeah. like, yeah. And like I'd always viewed plant based, and like plant based is obviously a much broader term. You can be predominantly plant based. You can be yeah. There's a spectrum yeah. there. Um, but it's really interesting just like thinking through that. So I was like worth sharing in case I'm not the only person who did not know that. Totally. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, that will wrap up episode 21 of the podcast. So thank you to everybody who has listened. I hope you enjoyed it.